do you do when it seems like evil has the upper hand? What if you are attempting to fear God and walk in His ways, and yet you face affliction for it? What if the enemies of God are lying and cheating and stealing, committing injustices, and, to top it off, getting away with it? What if there is seemingly nothing that you can do about it? Do you, do you just have to grin and bear it? What do you do when it seems like evil has the upper hand? What if you reminded yourself of the history of God's people and how they were greatly afflicted? What if you remembered that they were struck down but not destroyed? What if you remembered instances of the the Lord's victory, of, of turning the tide even, and exposing evil's defeat? What if you remembered that those instances of the Lord's victory in history are emblematic of the Lord's coming victory at the end of history? What if you prayed for the Lord to be victorious? When it seems like evil has the upper hand, remember the history of the people of God. Remember God's past action. Appeal to the Lord to act in the here and now and wait patiently, as we just sung. Wait patiently for the consummation of the Lord's victory at the end of time. These are some of the lessons that we have the privilege of learning together from God's Word today. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to to open your Bible, turn in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word to Psalm 129. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, you can find the passage, Psalm 129, on page 518. And when you arrive at Psalm 129, what you're going to find is an inscription there at the top. It's a smaller print, but all capital letters. And the inscription says, A Song of Ascents. This is one of the uh, 15 psalms that Israelite pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts. This, as I've been calling it, is the ancient mixtape of uh, the the ancient people of God, for the people of Israel. This is their road trip music. Uh, They would go up and they would sing songs along the way. Uh, These psalms, they were actually composed at different times in Israel's history. Uh, They were probably eventually compiled after the Babylonian captivity as a single set. And these songs, they're they're useful to us in the here and now uh, because... Like these ancient pilgrims who were headed up to Jerusalem for worship, we too, we are headed up to the new Jerusalem to worship the living God. We're pilgrims in this world. We're headed up to the heavenly Mount Zion where we'll see our God face to face. In these songs, uh, we learn how to be holy, how to be happy, how to deal with heavy-hearted burdens, and how to make our journey to heaven trusting the Lord. Psalm 129, it teaches us an important lesson on the journey. And it's simply this. The Lord will preserve His people and prevail over evil. If you're looking for a single sentence summarized of the psalm that we're looking at together this morning, that's it. The Lord will preserve His people and prevail over evil. Now, if you've been following the progression of these psalms of ascent, you will notice that this psalm sounds a strange note. Um, With Psalm 127 and 128, the psalms immediately preceding 129, 
we were up to our ears in the Lord's blessing. But suddenly, Psalm 129 sounds a different note. See if you can spot it. Psalm 129. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet, they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord Yahweh is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arm, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord Yahweh. Well, uh, after having been up to our ears in blessings in the previous Psalms, we're suddenly up to our ears in affliction and curse. How does it make sense that this psalm is the next psalm on the journey? Well, as we thought about last time, blessing doesn't equal perfect bliss. This is especially true because God has enemies. God has had enemies from the very beginning. And the most God's enemies can do is attack God's people. Remember, that's what Satan did in the very beginning in the garden when Adam was living in perfect blessing. God's enemies, they, they can't lay a finger on God. So they forcefully afflict God's people. Psalm 129 reminds us that God is righteous. It reminds us that though God's people may experience affliction from God's enemies, God will act for them and their preservation. This psalm even reminds us that God's people may appeal for the Lord Yahweh to punish His enemies. And through it all, we learn that the righteous Lord will preserve His people and prevail over evil. We're going to examine this psalm under three headings. The affliction of the Lord's people, there in verses 1 to 3. The action of the Lord for His people, there in verse 4. And finally, the appeal for the Lord's punishment, verses 5 to 8. Or more simply, affliction, action, appeal. As we open God's word together today, Christian, I pray that you are comforted by the truth that you, though you may face affliction on your journey from the enemies of God, you will rejoice in the truth that Jesus, Jesus will preserve you and prevail over evil. Let's dive into this study now. Let's consider the Psalms' first point, the affliction of the Lord's people. Take a look at verses 1 to 3 again. Let's read them again. <coughs> Greatly. Have they afflicted me from my youth? Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, in reading this psalm, one of the first things that might jump out to you is, okay, who's, who's speaking? Who's singing? Is it the individual Israelite? Like we talk about me and my in these verses? Or, or is it the, the kind of corporate people of God? After all, we have that, that phrase, let Israel now say. It's, okay, people, time to join in and sing along. Let Israel now say. So who are we looking at? The individual Israelites or the corporate people of God who are suffering? 
Yes. Yes, the, the individual Israelites have suffered as part of the corporate people of God. And the corporate people of God have suffered as a nation. Israel is confessing a, a solidarity in their suffering. And this is actually important, important aspect of our Christian experience too. Yes, we are, we are individually saved. We individually belong to the Lord, but we are saved into a body belonging to Christ. A people who are so knit together that we feel the pains of our fellow members. Ask yourself, is that, is that you? Is that your experience as a Christian? Not only in your suffering, do, do other people sympathize with you, come alongside you, bless you, care for you? And do you do the same when another believer in the Lord whom you've committed yourself to, is suffering. You come alongside them, bless them, love them, and build them up. I think that you are a faithful congregation who has displayed that kind of love by God's grace. Notice that Israel has not suffered just a little. They've suffered a lot, haven't they? They've suffered greatly, as the psalm says. It says it twice, right? The word possesses the idea that the people of God had suffered many times and in many ways. Their sufferings have been numerous. And indeed, from one vantage point, the history of the people of Israel has been a history of suffering. Notice that little phrase there, from my youth up. As the corporate people of God from the very birth of the nation amid slavery in Egypt, Israel has suffered. Once they escaped suffering, they didn't go on from strength to strength. No, they went on from suffering to suffering. After Egypt... They were harassed in the wilderness by the Amalekites. Then when they entered the promised land, the nations living in the land grew strong and they oppressed Israel in the time of the judges. Then when the kingdom was finally established, they constantly fought the Philistines. Eventually, Syria and Assyria came knocking on their door. If this psalm were written in the exile or after the exile, then they were like, likely reflecting on the affliction that they endured at the hands of Babylon. They would later experience the affliction of the Romans. Read through the Old Testament and you'll find enemy after enemy after enemy of the ancient people of God. Israel's suffering, it was prolonged and profound. It was immense and intense. It was difficult and it was deep. I mean, the double expression there is meant to underscore this. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Say it again, guys. It's, it's been long. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It's this double expression shows us that it's been difficult and deep. But so do the words of verse 3. Did you notice them? The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now here, the psalm is poetically using an agricultural image to express the anguish of Israel's affliction. Those who till the fields, breaking them up so that the soil is kind of turned over and exposed, ready to receive the seed for planting. That imagery is likened to those who beat upon the backs of Israel. They opened up their backs with such pain and whips. And that phrase, that they made long their furrows, that furrow is a, is a trench, right, that's cut uh, in, in farming. And they're saying that they're, it's a long trench. And the idea is probably that the stripes they endured stretch across their whole back. It was a long strike. They had scars Long scars. This is the affliction that the Lord's people have endured. And it pictured the affliction of Israel's Messiah and what he would endure too. 
When reading the Old Testament, we must remember that it points us to the words and works of the Lord Jesus Christ in a number of different ways. Jesus even taught his disciples to think this way about the Old Testament. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they speak of him, that he fulfilled them. So when we think about the, the plowers plowed upon the back of the corporate people of Israel, expressed in the singular me, our minds rightly go to Jesus and to other Old Testament predictions of what he would endure here. So, the Messianic servant of the Lord. We read this in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, of the Messianic servant of the Lord. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's what Jesus endured. He endured what Psalm 129 is talking about. Think about Isaiah 53, verse 5. We're reminded, by His wounds, by His stripes, we are healed. When we come to the Gospels, we find a near literal fulfillment of these verses when we're told in Matthew 27, verse 26. They scourged Jesus. They, they whipped Him. They delivered Him over to be crucified. Or in John 19, 1, the Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. They plowed upon Jesus' back. They made their furrows long on His back. This suffering of Jesus, it was part of the climax of His earthly ministry. But He was afflicted from the very moment His life began on earth. The sufferings of Jesus are rightly described as occurring from His youth up. I mean, remember who Jesus is, perfectly pure in His person, being the eternal Son of God and God Himself. Right? Jesus was perfect in His person, holy in His person, and He was surrounded by sinners and constantly being sinned against while never sinning in return. When Jesus began His public ministry, He was harassed and hounded by the devil. He was rejected even in His own hometown. Massive crowds would follow Him one moment and abandon Him the next. He was mocked and maligned by the Pharisees. He was betrayed by someone close. And when authorities started closing in on him, all of his disciples left him all alone. When we think of Jesus' sinlessness, we're tempted to forget his affliction. We're, we're tempted to forget that he was sinless in his sufferings. Jesus cried like Israel cried in anguish through this psalm. We see Words that Jesus would have used. Greatly have I been afflicted from my youth up. We ought not forget that Jesus lived this psalm for us. When you read verses like Hebrews 4.15, which says that we have a Savior who can sympathize with our weakness and suffering because in every respect He's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember this. Jesus' sufferings were not painless, but painful and He was sinless in them for your salvation. Suffering. It not only marked the whole history of Israel, the whole history of our Savior's life, but it has marked the whole history of the Christian church and will until Christ returns. Read through the book of Acts and you'll find the apostles rejoicing that they were rejected and counted worthy for suffering, shame for the name of Jesus. Read through the early history of the church and the roughly 10 waves of persecution that marked the first 300 years of the church's existence. Read the accounts of the young mother Perpetua, the old minister Polycarp, who were put to death for Christ. Read the persecution of John Whitcliffe in 
John Huss before the Reformation. Read the burning of the stake of Latimer and Ridley in the English Reformation. Read of the church harassed and hounded in China and Turkey and the Middle East today. Christ fulfilled the pattern of suffering pictured in Israel's life. And now the church, in their union with Christ, follows in the path of her Savior's affliction. And affliction is only what we should expect as Christians. Jesus taught His disciples to expect persecution. So in Mark chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus said this to His disciples, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them. Or consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 proclaimed, Indeed all, Paul's language is really careful here, Indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not a matter of if, but will, certainly. And when Paul went around strengthening the churches and the souls of the disciples in the book of Acts, do you know how he encouraged them? Imagine Paul with the goal of turning up to a local church, wanting to encourage them. I want to build you up in the faith. And he says this in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how Paul encouraged the saints. Through, not around, but through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Oh, but beloved, you will enter the kingdom of God, though you go through them. Peter told Christians... Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Affliction should be our expectation as Christians. And along with the physical persecution of the church in the first 300 years, we actually forget that there was also a kind of popular and public criticism of the church. There was actually a political criticism as well, and a philosophical, kind of academic criticism of Christianity. While these forms of affliction are not the same as the physical persecution, I think that we must understand that they still have a profound impact on the church. It does face these forms of persecution. While the church in our Western context may not face physical persecution, I do think that it does face these forms of popular and public Criticism, political criticism, philosophical criticism. But all of this raises a question. Why? Why this affliction? Why this suffering? Why did the ancient people of God suffer? Why do the people of God suffer today? Well, the answer is in the question. Why are the people of God afflicted? Because they are the people of God. Our union with Jesus Christ makes us a target of hatred for the world and the devil. From the very beginning, as I mentioned earlier, in Genesis 3.15, we're told about how there would be enmity between the seed of the woman, the promised line of the Messiah, and the seed of the serpent. And we see that battle and war and enmity playing out all across the Scriptures. That ancient dragon has long been afflicting the people of God. He has attempted by all sorts of means to bring the line of the Messiah to an end. But he did not prevail and will not prevail. Beloved, consider the fact that Egypt did not prevail in keeping Israel enslaved. Pharaoh did not succeed in holding on 
to God's people in slavery. You know who else did not prevail in wiping out the people of God? The Philistines, the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and every other ancient enemy. God perfectly preserved His people. They did not prevail. Oh, the people of God, they, they faced affliction, but they were never in danger of facing extinction. Yes, some Israelites were put to death. Yes, some Christians have been put to death. Many have been put to death. But the people of God as a whole were not wiped out. Our God would not let that happen. He will not let that happen. Beloved, consider the fact that the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire who afflicted the church for three successive centuries did not prevail. And now the Roman Empire? Where is the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire is in history books. That's where the Roman Empire is. They're a subject of study, not a present power to be feared by the church. In fact, no present power should be feared by the church or Christians. On your journey home, remember that though you and the church alongside you and with you, and you as a corporate people of God, as the bride of Christ, may face affliction, but will never face extinction. Beloved, when you are being afflicted and it seems that evil has the upper hand, remember the history of God's people and their affliction. Remember that God preserved them. Remember the history of your Savior who suffered for you and for your, for your salvation. Remember the history of Christ's church who suffered and yet the kingdom of Christ survived. You are not alone. You have a solidarity with the people of God and the Savior of God's people throughout the ages. The people of God face affliction because we are the people of God. But there are yet two more reasons why the people of God face affliction. We read them earlier in the service, actually, in our scripture reading. Paul gave them to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul said, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that, okay, so why is this happening? Why are we being given over to death? Paul says, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then a few verses later, verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul said, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are afflicted so that the glory of Jesus might be revealed in us. Jesus wants to make you a vessel that displays His glory in the midst of your affliction. And we are afflicted so that we might be prepared for glory. Your, your affliction is really an announcement of Jesus' glory. Your affliction is evangelistic in a certain sense. So don't waste your affliction. Tell the world of the King that you serve in your affliction. Your affliction is also getting you ready for glory. You cannot bear the weight of glory in the future until you've lived and lifted the weight of suffering with Christ in this life. Look on your affliction with an eternal perspective. In the midst of affliction, Jesus is making you a witness and one who is preparing you for glory. So rejoice in the Lord's commitment to preserve His people and keep His promises. The Lord Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Do you know why and how Jesus is able to make that promise? Keep that promise? Because the Lord is righteous. Because He acts for His glory and for the good of His people. Let's turn now 
and consider the second point that this psalm makes. We're going to look at the action of the Lord for His people. As we consider this, take a look at Psalm 129 verse 4. Read that verse. The Lord Yahweh is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Beloved, here we find the theological center of the psalm. And with it, the theological rock upon which the people of God can build their lives. You need this verse as you make your journey through this world. Memorize this verse. Meditate on this verse. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Here's the first thing that we need to understand about this verse. The action of the Lord arises from His attributes. The action of the Lord arises from His attributes. In other words, God's just and righteous character, His true and faithful commitment to His glory and His people moves Him to act. The action of the Lord arises from His attributes. The Lord Yahweh is righteous. That's what we're talking about here. The Lord Yahweh. That's what those capital letters, L-O-R-D, stand for. The divine name. The self-disclosed divine name of God. When we read the Lord Yahweh, all that's meant to come kind of flooding back into our minds is His commitment to His people and His promises. He's righteous and just in that sense. He will be true to His word and keep His promises to preserve His people, to bring the Messiah through them and settle them in the promised land. He's a true God. He's true to His word. That's why the enemy will not prevail, has not prevailed. The Lord Yahweh is righteous in the sense that He's just, just and true and faithful to His promise. But He's also righteous in another sense. The Lord Yahweh justly and righteously punishes iniquity, transgression, and sin. He will not let injustice and oppression against His people go on forever. There will be a day of reckoning when God rights all wrongs, settles all accounts, and brings all evil and evildoers to the bar of His justice. We need this reassurance when we are afflicted, when we see injustice around us, and when only kind of partial justice is carried out in this life. This is our God. The Lord Yahweh is righteous. Remember that He is righteous and have faith that He will right all wrongs, settle all accounts, bring all evil and evildoers to the bar of His justice. The righteousness of God is why the people of God can appeal to God in the midst of affliction. The righteousness of God is why the people of God can endure excruciating pain. The righteousness of God is why the people of God can hope in God's holy justice yet to come. And yet, the righteous Lord does from time to time give His people relief in the present life. Relief from affliction. In the present life, He not only takes action to preserve His people, but also to punish the wicked and bring their evil schemes to an end. That's actually the thrust of the second half of verse 4. He has, notice the language, He has cut the cords of the wicked. Think of the, the whips that the slave masters were using to beat against the backs of the Egyptians. He's cut them. They no longer reach the people of God. He's removed them from their reach. The people who first sang this song had some experience of God acting, not only to prohibit the wicked from prevailing, but also cutting off their oppression. In other words, the perspective of this psalmist is once actually looking back on God's past action, the action of the Lord. The, the cords may be referring to uh, the people of Israel in Egypt and cutting the cords of their taskmasters in slavery, but can also be referenced to other times in Israel's history when they were facing oppression. 
perhaps uh, other uh, regimes. Think of if they're coming out after Babylonian captivity. The Lord has cut the power and the cords of those who are holding them enslaved in Babylon. The Lord cut the cords of all of those oppressive powers. And perhaps this is one of the reasons that the psalm is generic. I don't know if you thought about that. But the psalm doesn't actually name Egypt. It doesn't say, oh, Egypt is the enemy we're talking about here. Or the Amalekites are the enemy we're talking about here. Or the Babylonians are the enemy we're talking about here. This makes the psalm useful for the people of God to pick up throughout the ages and actually apply to their own hearts and lives. So you can pick up Psalm 129 verse 4. Say, Lord, I'm I'm facing affliction from my boss for not wanting to fudge the numbers, to change the report. He's pressing down upon me for that. Well, Lord, would you cut the cords? Would you remove this oppressive power from me? You can pray this psalm in your own life. This makes this psalm useful for us to sing. We're reminded throughout the history of God's people that He has given glimpses too of what is coming in the end. His justice being carried out in the present is a small picture of His justice being carried out at the end of time. The righteous Lord cutting the cords of the wicked should especially lead us to remember all that He's accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave. Jesus was bound and led away. He was afflicted and then nailed to the cross. And there He endured not just the scorn of His persecutors, but He suffered the Lord's righteous anger against wickedness and sin. It was there on the cross that the oppressive cords of sin and death began to lay hold of Him. And listen to the affliction of Jesus according to Psalm 18.4. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The the cords of death, to use the language of Psalm 18.4, those ultimate enemies and oppressors of God's people entangled Jesus and attempted to hold Him in the grave. But on the third day, God cut the cords of the wicked. He cut the cords of sin and death. This is just what the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The righteous Lord cut the cords of sin and death, and Jesus was raised up from the grave in victory on the third day. The righteous Lord would not let His righteous one, His holy one, see corruption. Jesus was brought down into the grave. But he rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. Because God the Father cut the cords. In Christ's death and resurrection, God was both just and righteous in punishing sin. And just and righteous in raising his son from the grave. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that we should hide ourselves in Jesus Christ. It means that we trust in his righteousness for our salvation. It means that we remember that the righteous Lord... He's cut the cords of sin in our sanctification too. You see, in the lives of Christians, God has cut the cords of power of sin in our lives. Though the presence of sin still remains. In Romans 6, Paul reminds us that we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer under that harsh taskmaster. Because of what Jesus has done, He's set us free from slavery to sin. And because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can actually say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus is our new Lord and master. In the lives of God's people, sin does not have the same enslaving 
power that it once had. And Psalm 129 verse 4 also means that we trust in the Lord's righteous justice for our vindication. We don't take justice into our own hands. We entrust it to the Lord. As we sang earlier, so to the Lord we leave it all. After all, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 to 36, the righteous Lord says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. Beloved, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, an astounding verse, Paul says this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Leave it all to the Lord. Since God will justly repay those who afflict you, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, insofar as it depends upon you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 17-19. The people of God trust the righteous Lord to act. He has done it in the past. It reminds us of what is coming in the future. He can do it in the present. The people of God trust the righteous Lord to act. And we can even appeal for the Lord to act by punishing His enemies. That's what the last four verses of the psalm teach us. So let's turn and consider our third and final point, the appeal for the Lord's punishment. Read Psalm 129, verses 5 to 8 now. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord Yahweh. These are stark and striking verses, aren't they? They are a prayer. We see that they're a prayer in the words like may and let. Those are words of petition. This prayer is called what is often known as an imprecatory prayer. Uh, it's a, an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory prayer is where the, the people of God call for God's judgment upon the enemies of God. And this is where a, a slow and careful reading of the psalm repays us. Notice who this prayer is against. You see it there? It's against all who hate Zion. It's not a prayer against those who are innocent of evil, but guilty of evil, especially the evil of hating the righteous Lord God. Uh, Zion, as you'll remember, is often another name for the temple. It's where God made His earthly presence known. These are principally enemies of God. And the reason they hate and afflict the people of God is because they hate the God who loves His people. And notice their attitude toward Zion, toward God. They hate Him. Uh, the, the enemies of God do not love God. They hate God. They loathe God. They abhor God. They're disgusted by God. They scorn and smite God. Spite God. And so, God's people pray, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. God's people don't want the enemies of God to be victorious in their attack on God's righteous character. 
So God's people pray for their shameful defeat. God's people pray that God's enemies will be turned back like an army who's fleeing in retreat and fear and shame, cowering. Verse 5. This verse functions as something of the heading for the prayer. The overarching request that all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. And then the remaining verses of this psalm are kind of poetic ways of describing this shameful defeat. So in, in verse 6, right, the people of God pray for their enemies to wither like the grass that grows on the top of roofs. And in ancient Israel, right, most of the homes would be supported by, by wooden beams stretching straight across. And kind of clay would often be laid over top of it. If that clay ever kind of got moist and the wind blew, grass seeds could, could grow up there on the, uh, on the rooftops. But when the scorching sun came up, the heat came up, it would cause the grass to wither. There's, there's no place for there to be a root and therefore no place for this, this grass to produce a crop or a fruit. So verse 6 is a prayer for no life for the wicked. It's a prayer that their end would actually swiftly come. Verse 7 actually carries this imagery, the same imagery forward. Since the grass is withered, since no good or useful crop was produced, then there's, there's nothing for the reaper to collect or put in his hand. Nobody who, who binds the sheaves can actually go and get anything from this crop. There's, there's no crop for him to put in his hand or his arms. So verse 7 is a prayer for no harvest to the wicked. And then the final verse of the psalm is simply the conclusion of the matter. Since the enemies of God have no life and no crop, they have no blessing. Uh, their, their neighbors won't swing by and say, hey, you're, you're blessed in the name of the Lord. No, they'll, they'll walk by in silence, trying not to comment on their neighbor's shame. And what we're seeing here in this final verse is actually a reversal of what happened with Boaz in the book of Ruth. If you remember how there was a, a great harvest in Bethlehem, uh, Boaz went out, uh, and in, in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, he passed by the reapers in the field, and he said, The Lord be with you. And they, they called back and answered back, The Lord bless you. So Boaz, he was a, was a man who feared the Lord, and so enjoyed the favor of the Lord, and enjoyed a, a fruitful crop. But the prayer against God's enemies here is not one of blessing, but one of curse and condemnation. The people of God are praying for no life, no harvest, and no blessing from God for God's enemies. How should, we, how should we think about this? I mean, after all, this is nothing less than a prayer for God to curse His enemies. I mean, is this, is this a Christian prayer? Can, can we pray this kind of prayer? Well, one of the things I think we must always keep in mind when reading the imprecatory psalms uh, and the imprecatory prayers in the psalms is that they're not personal prayers for vengeance but prayers for God to vindicate His own name and carry forward His own justice against His own enemies. They're not prayers in which the people of God pray, Lord, smite my enemies. They were mean to me, so I'm calling in kind of a divine drone strike upon them. That's not what these prayers are. These are prayers, are prayers against those who hate Zion, those who hate God and have acted against Him and against His interests. And against his enemies. Uh, they're, they're not vindictive prayers. They're prayers for God to execute his justice according to his own perfect righteousness. They're, they're actually prayers asking God to keep his promises. I don't know if you, you thought about this, but this is actually a prayer just appealing to God's promises. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he began to form the nation of Israel through Abraham, he told Abraham, uh, those who bless you, 
I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so here the people of God are actually praying the promises of God back to Him. Appealing Him to keep that promise. Lord, you, you told Abraham, you told us as your people, that those who bless us, you're going to bless, but those who curse, you will curse. So, so keep your promises and curse them. These imprecatory prayers remind us that God is just and that He is the judge. And they even remind us that we, we will face God's justice and judgment unless we flee to Him for forgiveness and mercy and grace. You see, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, we are actually those who hate Zion. So if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are only two groups of people, those who love Zion and those who hate Zion. And friend, consider what this psalm says that those who hate Zion deserve. This is all of us, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. We are those who are enemies of God. Apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, we are those who deserve God's judgment. And God's curse hangs over our head. Friend, did you realize this? We have all sinned against God. We've all rebelled against God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We've all decided to live our own way rather than God's way. Because of our selfishness and sin and our own hatred of God, we deserve to face God's just and righteous wrath forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is this. God has come to reconcile His enemies to Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived a life of perfect sinlessness and righteousness. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. He died for sinners like you and like me. And on the cross he bore the curse of God's wrath for sinners like you and me. Either you bear God's curse or you hide yourself under Jesus and he has borne the curse for you. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, God showed His love for us in this. While we were still His enemies, still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 Friend, if you want to escape the curse of God that you deserve, believe in Jesus. Believe that He was cursed for you as He hung upon the cross, on the cross, uh, the tree. Believe that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe that God offers you eternal life and that one day, God will welcome you to His heavenly Mount Zion. Friend, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ today. Escape God's curse and enjoy God's blessing. Whereas the enemies of God enjoy no eternal life with God, no fruit of the Spirit in their lives, no blessing from God, all because of Jesus Christ, believers enjoy eternal life with God. The fruit of the Spirit in their lives and blessing from God. Come to Jesus. Enjoy the promise of this psalm that Jesus will preserve you from eternal harm and prevail over evil in the end and welcome you to His heavenly glory. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus in faith, to move from being one who hates Zion to one who loves Zion, one who hates God to one who loves God all because of what He's done in Jesus Christ, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you about this good news in Jesus Christ. Now because... These imprecatory prayers are occur actually so frequently in the Psalms. I feel like I need to 
actually finally answer the question I asked a few minutes ago, that nagging question. Do we still pray? As Christians, do we still pray? Things like this. Do we still pray for God to defeat his enemies? In other words, can we as Christians, in light of the grace of Jesus Christ, pray these kinds of prayers? And if so, how? Here's my answer to those questions. Yes, we should still pray for God to defeat his enemies. We should pray imprecatory prayers. Prayers for God to judge and exercise his justice. And we should pray them on two horizons. One, horizon of eternity, and on the horizon of the here and now. When Let's think, think first about the eternal horizon. When we as Christians are mocked and scorned and afflicted in our workplaces, in the world, in the media, on the pages of a major newspaper, for example, or in the public square, what does it look like to pray Psalm 129, verses 6 to 8, on an eternal horizon? We pray for the Lord to awaken our friends, our co-workers, our family members, and our neighbors to their sin. For them to be ashamed of how they've treated God and God's people. It means that we pray for friends and co-workers and family members and neighbors to repent, to be ashamed of their unbelief and rebellion against God, and to be turned back from their unbelief and rebellion and warring against God, and turn and find salvation in Jesus Christ. We should pray for their unbelief to wither. For them to see that all of their arguments that they have against God and their hatred of Him cannot fill their hands or their arms. They will not satisfy. We should pray for them to see that there is no blessing in rejecting God. And pray for them to run to God in faith. We want to pray that their rebellion against God will be immediately reversed and ruined. Praying this prayer in light of Christ means praying that the sins of the wicked would be judged in Jesus Christ. That they would come to believe that He was cursed for them and for their salvation. Matthew Henry summarizes the idea of this kind of prayer like this. He says, Let them be ashamed. Let them be brought to repentance. So filled with shame as that they may seek Thy name. We want to pray that their sins would be eternally dealt with in Jesus Christ. And that justice would be done at the cross for them. That he endured the curse for them in their salvation. And still, we want to pray that if their sins are not punished in Christ, that their sins will be punished in all eternity. We do want to pray that God will uphold his justice and right all wrongs. So, what about praying for justice in the here and now? Can we as Christians pray in good faith the imprecatory psalms upon God's enemies in the here and now? Is it not right to desire justice in the here and now? Perfect justice will not always be exercised in this life, but we can pray for some measures of justice to be demonstrated. Let us not forget that these enemies hate God and act in accordance with their hatred. We should not imagine the enemies of God to be innocent, which means they deserve justice. They actively afflict, and we can pray for God to cut the cords of their affliction. For example, we can legitimately desire and pray for those who perpetuate sex slavery or human trafficking or abortion and the like. We can pray that if they will not repent and stop pursuing such evil, that the Lord will cut the cords of their wickedness. We can pray that the demand for sex slavery and human trafficking and abortion would wither up and vanish from off the earth. 
We can pray that those who perpetuate such crimes and sins would enjoy no fruitfulness and no financial gain in their labors. We can pray that no one would bless them who perpetuate such evil. We can pray that the Lord would consume them as fire consumes the forest. Psalm 83 verse 14. And think of how loving that prayer is for those who are under their affliction. For the Lord to cut the cords and them to be released and set free from it. That is a loving prayer for the justice of God to be done. It is right for us to pray for justice in the here and now. It is right to pray for deliverance for those who are facing affliction and injustice in the here and now. And it is right to entrust that justice to God right here and right now. And similarly, we can pray for God to cut the cords of the persecutors of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. We can pray for our brothers and sisters in China and in Iran and other places where they are facing persecution for their affliction. We can pray for their relief and for their persecutors' repentance. These are godly and God-honoring prayers. And I urge you to pray them. And as we conclude, it is also right for us to remember. It's right to pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come. In fact, that prayer is a prayer for Jesus to come in judgment and execute His justice. So I I want you now to to turn in your Bibles. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. I want us to see what this looks like. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 10,040. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. When Jesus comes, the book of Revelation tells us That Jesus will come to judge the world in righteousness. Look at Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 16. John writes, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What do you do when it seems like evil has the upper hand? You remember Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16 and the hope of Psalm 129. The hope of Psalm 129 and Revelation 19 is that the righteous Lord will preserve His people and prevail over evil. Do you see how He preserves His people? Revelation 19, our King, He rides out on a white horse and we follow Him in our white robes, on our white horses. The righteous Lord rides out to rule and His people ride with Him. We are not those defeated in battle. We are victorious because our Lord is victorious. We are assured by God's word that our Lord will not let His enemies or our enemies prevail. He will eternally preserve us and prevail over evil. And this is what we need to remember 
as we make our way home on our road to the new Jerusalem. As we're pilgrims, right? As the ancient pilgrims journeyed, they remembered to trust their righteous Lord. They remembered that He would preserve His people and keep His promises. We must remember this too, especially in the midst of our affliction. We must remember that the Lord will preserve and prevail. So we can pray greatly, Lord Jesus, greatly we have been afflicted. So come and bring your people's affliction to an end. We can pray greatly we have been afflicted. So come, Lord Jesus, and cut the cords of the wicked. Come and judge. We can pray, come, righteous Lord. Come and right all wrongs. And as we do, let us remember how Jesus lived this psalm for us. He suffered and was afflicted for us and for our salvation. He entrusted himself to God. And after his sufferings, he entered glory. After his sufferings, he entered glory. Christian, the path and pattern of your Savior is the path and pattern of your life. Beloved, if we wish to share in Christ's glory, we must share in His sufferings. That's how we'll overcome. That's how we prevail in Him. He took up His cross. Let us take up ours and follow Him all the way to glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the comfort of this word from you. Uh, We give you thanks that we are assured here in Psalm 129 that though there is affliction, there is the conquest and victory of Christ our Savior. Father, we pray and ask that you would act. We give you thanks for how you have acted, how you have punished and judged our sins in Jesus Christ, how you've cut the cords of our slavery to sin and set us free. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us to live in freedom for the glory of your name. And we appeal to you now, asking you to bring an end to wickedness. Father, we pray and ask that you would end evil and wickedness in our world for the glory of your name. And that you would help your people to persevere in faith. Help us to take up our cross and follow our Christ all the way home. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.